We're turning tonight to the book of Acts, the second book written by Luke, the beloved physician, and both written to Theophilus, some friend of his. Luke is the record of the life of Christ, and Acts is the account of that gospel of Christ going forward after his resurrection from the dead. Acts chapter 5, we're going to break in at verse 17. Peter and John are imprisoned for preaching the gospel, and they're brought before the Sanhedrin, the council it's called, the 70 who were the law in Israel. Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors, and brought them forth, and said, Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. When they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly found me shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And when the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. We'll end our reading there, and trust the Lord will add his blessing to it for his own name's sake. Please bow your head with me for a moment in prayer, and let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, in Christ's name, we pray for that heavenly anointing upon the soul to preach the word of God. Without the Spirit, we have no power, no ability at all. 
But as even we've read tonight, he is the one who bears witness with the witness of thy servants in the preaching. May that be a very real experience for us all tonight, the Holy Ghost preaching alongside the preacher. And that will happen, Lord, in answer to prayer, all is well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. One of the most instructive and challenging passages in the book of Acts is found at the end of chapter 5. The Sanhedrin have beaten the apostles for preaching Christ and commanded them never again to speak in his name. It's then that we read that thrilling statement in verses 41 and 42. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. They had not only been threatened, but the threatening had been realized. They had been beaten because of what they had done. As soon as they're let go, what do they do? They go right back to preaching and teaching Jesus Christ in the temple, in every house. They ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Nothing would shut their mouths. No threat of death would shut their mouths. Well, what a contrast that would be to modern-day Christianity when it seems it doesn't take a whole lot to close the mouth of a child of God because of the fear of man. They looked the fear square in the face and said, we don't care what you say, we're going to keep on preaching Christ. Keep in mind that this very council had only a couple of months earlier crucified Christ for teaching doctrines that they didn't like. And certainly that very possibility loomed over the horizon for them as well. But here, here were men who refused to budge an inch in that matter. With one voice they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. You want to live by that rule. We ought to obey God rather than men. It is remarkable to remember that these same disciples, in a, in a not-too-distant past, were found hiding behind closed doors for fear of the Jews, shaking in their boots, as we would say. Now they are bold as a lion, fearless. What made the difference? What changed them? And indeed, what what changes any Christian from being a timid, meek, fearful, cowering believer, afraid of their own shadow, afraid of persecution, afraid of death, to one where they are quite happy to stare death in the face and are bold and courageous? What, what brings that about? It's what brought it about in them. There's two things, actually, that made the difference. First, they had, they had seen the resurrected Christ. That, that changed everything for them until they saw him standing in the midst of the room where they were cowering for fear of the Jews, until they saw him before them, until they had that sight of Christ, they were going to be there in fear and dread of what might happen to them. But now their master, their master had come back from the dead. 
and they realized that death could not keep its prey because this was the prince of life. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. That's what John wrote. Then were they glad when they realized not just the visible sight with the eyes. That's not the word he uses. He uses the word that speaks of perception, realization. This is the Messiah, and he's alive. It was a conviction from that point on that this one who conquered the grave can certainly take care of us. Whatever happens in life, he can take care of us. We have nothing to be afraid of. No need to worry. No need to sit in anxiety. This is the Prince of Life. This is the Lord of Glory. This is God's Son. This is the one who is everything that he said he was and claimed to be. It changed them. It was the sight of the risen Christ that changed them. And it's still the same thing to this very day that changes God's people, that transforms them and gives them that victory over the fear and the anxiety and the worry and the dread. It's having a sight. Oh, not anymore it was for them, not the visible sight, but the realization he's alive. My Lord and Savior is alive. He's the Prince of Life. He's conqueror over sin and death and hell. And I have nothing to worry about. And there's no one I need to fear except God. That's bottom line. That's all a lot of, you know, theory and theology until you actually see the Lord with your spiritual sight. Then it becomes reality to you and not just textbook material. Because Christ is real. Ultimate reality, he's alive. Not not only were those apostles changed, uh, so much so that Christ will send them out to be missionaries beginning at Jerusalem and then going on to Judea and then on from there to Samaria and then from there to the uttermost parts of the earth... And they go out, and the the talk was, these guys are turning the world upside down. That's how effective they were. When actually they were turning the world right side up, but that's because man is just perverted in his thinking. He thinks the world is right side up, but actually the world is upside down. But these men came with preaching this gospel of Jesus Christ, and they turned things right side up. Powerful they were. But... It wasn't only that because he had shown himself alive, as Luke says in chapter 1, after many infallible proofs. It was because they were bold because they had been filled with the Spirit of Christ at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. The promised Spirit, promised back with the Old Testament prophets, especially Joel, because that's who Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2. This is that, this is that, which was spoken by the prophet Joel. What you're seeing happen was prophesied hundreds of years ago. Now it's happening. The Holy Ghost has has come down and we're filled with His power. That's Pentecost. And it changed them. 
changed them forever. They now had within them spiritual, you know the word, dunamis. They had spiritual dynamite within them. I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, to have to let you know that what's going on by and large today is a lot of firecrackers, but not dynamite. In fact, I would say a lot of duds. The firecracker won't even go off. There's a big difference in a firecracker and a stick of dynamite. These men had spiritual dynamite within because they were endued with the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were endued with that power to, for the very purpose, Jesus said, to be witnesses of his resurrection from the dead, which was the, the confirmation, the affirmation that all that he came to do, all that he said that he was, and what he was accomplishing by his life and death was actually true and to be believed. That's what Christ sent them out to preach. So with the clear and certain knowledge that the Lord had indeed risen from the dead, coupled with this endowment of the Spirit's power, this band of simple, everyday believers, most of them were unlearned fishermen. They, they, they weren't academics. They were unlearned fishermen, most of them, transformed into men who were very powerful, very fearless, who did a whole lot for the kingdom of God, to which to this very hour we, we owe a debt to them for what they did. Men who turned the world right side up. But it's, it's, it's not their courage their boldness that's so striking in this last part of chapter 5. It's what they taught and preached that stands out preeminently in the text I want us to look at this evening, verse 31. Peter tells the council, Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You're telling us to shut up. You're telling us never to preach in this name again. Peter says, what we're telling you is, God has exalted the very one you want us to be quiet about, exalted him a prince and a savior. Note very carefully the way in which the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to sum up the content of their teaching and preaching. Jesus Christ. That's the summary. Jesus Christ. They preached Him. Christ was the central theme of all they taught, the central theme of everything they did in carrying out the message. They preached Him. It was what the Scriptures taught about Him that they focused on and they would do no more and no less than what the Savior himself did when he told man to search the scriptures they are they which testify of me go ahead and search the Bible 
the Pharisees thought they knew the scriptures inside and out. But as we read tonight, interestingly enough, providentially enough, from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, there was a veil on their hearts, and they could not see that that Jehovah of the Old Testament was Christ himself until the veil is lifted off their hearts. Christ told them, you search the scriptures. They are that which testify of me. They're all about me. As he told the two men, very sad men on the Emmaus Road, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Two men who were depressed, defeated, and discouraged, and the method the Lord took with him was opening up the scriptures to them and showing the things concerning himself, particularly concerning his death and his resurrection from the dead. As Paul himself would later testify to the Corinthian church, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was determined. That's all I was going to preach. Therefore, the great task of any gospel minister, of any missionary, Bible teacher, Sunday school teacher, indeed the great thrust of the gospel sword is... Jesus Christ. That's easy enough said. But the question, the important question is, what kind of Christ did they preach? There's all kinds of Christ out there being preached, you know, being taught. What kind of Christ did those apostles teach? And therefore, what kind of Christ must always be preached, always uplifted today. What kind of Christ? I believe that the great need of the hour is the preaching of this Christ of the Apostles and the power of the Apostles. It's what we need. It doesn't matter what's happening or wasn't it, what isn't happening, the need for the hour, as much as it was in that hour, was the preaching of this Christ of the apostles and preaching it in the power of the apostles. Acts 5, where the apostles continue to preach and teach in the name of Jesus Christ after they had been plainly forbidden to do so by the apostles... As there before the council, it's Peter's answer to the question and to the charges of the council that we want to look at. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior. Until a man has this view of Christ in his head and in his heart, he'll never be able to truly present, preach, teach, explain, convey the message of Jesus Christ. Our text speaks plainly of the God-exalted Christ. Him hath God exalted. The God-exalted Christ, and that's what I want to think about for a little bit with you tonight. 
at the end of this Lord's day. First thing, might seem strange at first, but as we think about this God-exalted Christ, we want to look at the path that led to his exaltation. The path that led to his exaltation. Before you can ever look at Christ exalted, what that means, because you know what we're looking at is what, what kind of Christ needs to be preached today in the day of great darkness and confusion about what the Bible really teaches and what a Christian really is and what is real biblical preaching, gospel preaching, in a day when there is so much abysmal confusion about it all, we need to find out what kind of Christ should be preached. What kind of Christ are we to believe on? Because as I said, there are many Christs out there, many who claim this is Jesus. But is it the Jesus Christ of the Scriptures? That's the question. It's always the question. Before we can look at the exalted Christ, the one exalted to the right hand of God, we have to consider first the path he had to take to get to that place of exaltation. In verse 30, Peter reveals the way in which the Son of God was exalted by God, his Father, to be a prince and the Savior. Notice the contrast that he makes in verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. They slew him, they hung him on a tree, but God the Father raised him up. Peter says to them with all boldness, you put him down, God raised him up. You don't want to hear about, because they said, you're, you're, you're going to bring this man's blood upon us. But do you remember what they said? Well, what did these very men say? His blood be upon us and upon our children. And Peter, you don't want to hear this? Peter says, you slew him. You put him on a tree. But I want you to know God raised him up. And God exalted him to his right hand. You see, before there could ever be a raising up of Christ... From the grave, and before there could ever be an exalting of Christ to the right hand of God, there had to be the humiliation of Christ. Humiliation. Before there is exaltation, there is always humiliation. No shortcut to it. In the covenant of grace, we were talking about that in the Bible class this morning, the covenant of grace, God the Father... In that covenant, promised to Christ that he would give to him a people. He promised this. Um, why don't you do it? Why don't you turn to John 6? Christ says a lot about this in John chapter 6. John 6. Just, just a few pages back in your Bible. These people whom Christ has fed with the loaves and fishes are looking out, came out seeking for him. Not because they had any real interest in his message. They just wanted the free meals that he was able to work miraculously for them. They, they had never had a meal like it. You know, the, the, the fish that he produced there miraculously and the bread that he produced, I imagine that was probably the best tasting bread they had ever had. And it was the best tasting fish they had ever had. And they want more of it. And this is one who can just produce it. They want to see it again. They're not really interested in his message. And Christ tells them plainly why that is. 
So let's pick up John chapter 6, verse 35. He says to this crowd, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you, that ye also have seen me, and believe not. All that the Father giveth me, note that, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. There are people that the Father is giving to Christ, and they will, every one of them, they shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise, I will in no way cast him out. He'll never be rejected if he comes to me. Why would I reject a gift that's been given to me by my Father? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it'd be ludicrous, would it not? Son, I have a gift for you. I don't want it. You know that's ludicrous. So there are a people, Christ is plainly intimating here, that have been given to him by his Father, and every one of them will come to him, and every one of them will be received by him. None of them will ever be cast out. Verse 38, For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Here's what I'm here to do. I've been sent on a mission. Verse 39, And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me. Ah, a people given to him. I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. There's a people been given to me by my Father. It's my purpose to make sure that they'll be raised up at the last day. None of them will perish. Verse 40, And then um, this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he, hath, he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, listen to what he says, murmur not among yourselves. Quit getting upset about this. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up again at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Well, well, he's very plain there, is he not? The Father has a people that he has given to Christ in this covenant arrangement. I, I don't know who they all are. I thank the Lord I'm one of them. I, I, I was one given to Christ by the Father. If you're a believer, you are one of them. But who they all are, we'll find out one day. I know it'll be a number that no man can number. But they are specific people. 
Now, one of the things that the Father promised to Christ, I'm going to give you this people, and you will be their king. You will be their prince. You will be their savior. They're your people. But you have to save them. You have to conquer them. You have to be their king. They are born rebels against you. They are born as haters of God. And they will not come to you of their own. There must be something done for them before they will ever come and bow their knee to you. You must go and conquer them. So Jesus said, I am come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus, I will not, from what we've just read tonight, he's saying, I am not going to fail in this mission. Everyone that the Father has given to me, I will guarantee they will be brought in. They'll be raised up at the last day. They've been given to me by God. I'm not going to reject them. I'm going to come, march into their lives. I'm going to conquer their hearts. I'm going to capture their souls. They're going to be mine. I'm going to be their Lord, their Redeemer, their Savior. They're going to be my people. That's all in this glorious covenant of grace. But before he could receive this kingdom, before he could become their Savior, before he could actually pardon their sin, he had to be crucified. The only way Christ could ever receive that crown of joy that was before him was by receiving a crown of thorns. And that is why, that is why the glory of Emmanuel's land is the slain Lamb of God. You know that song, do you not, in Revelation chapter 4, that the redeemed are going to sing one day in heaven? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and power and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb. You go to the next chapter, Revelation chapter 5, John sees what? In the midst of the throne. In the midst of the throne of heaven, he sees a lamb as it had been slain. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. The true glory of all preaching, and I will tell you, there is a glory, there is a glory in preaching. But it's not the preacher. It's not him. It's not his delivery. The true glory in all preaching is Christ crucified. That's the most glorious thing that this man will ever engage in. Preaching Christ crucified. Preaching the slain Lamb of God. There's nothing, nothing, in comparison to him. Yes, he's the king. But he's in the midst of the throne as a king, a slain lamb. Yes, he's the savior. And he's the Lord of glory. 
as the Savior. The great reason why you all know, you've, you've been taught it, I imagine, for years, Jesus Christ is the great high priest. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And I always like whenever that thought comes to my mind about that well-known text, you know, we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. I always like to remind the Lord's people that those infirmities are not simply this compassionate high priest is able to feel for us when we hurt, when we have sorrows and troubles. There's much more to that word infirmity than that in that text. We have this great compassionate high priest who is touched with the feeling, the word is the, the, the it vibrates in sympathy with our, our feelings, who is in all points tempted like as we are. The infirmities have to do with our sins. The infirmities in that text have to deal with our sins. That's why he says, he was tempted yet without sin. And that's why we are told a few verses later to come to the throne of grace with boldness. Because Christ did not fail. He did not sin. He knew what it was like for Satan to come at him with his strongest temptations. To come under the attack of the devil, he knew well. He entered into that closeness with his people. If the line was drawn... I will not be tempted. It will not allure me. And I will not sin. I am doing for my people who have been given to me by my Father what they could never do for themselves. That's why I came. To do for them what they could never do for themselves. That's Jesus Christ. That is the Christ that needs to be preached, exalted. The reason why Christ's intercession at the right hand of God means anything and everything is because he himself, as the sacrifice and as the priest, satisfied all the justice of God's law. Satisfied it completely. The reason God hears Christ's prayers for ruined sinners is just because Christ prays on that very ground of his own shed blood. Christ does that. I mean, I mean brothers and sisters, what was the point of the Old Testament picture of the high priest going into the most holy place once a year. Not without blood, the writer of Hebrews says, not without blood. You think it was just a nice little story? No, it was all typical of what Christ would do. So Christ would enter into heaven as the great high priest by blood. And that blood was his blood. That, that blood was his atoning blood. And on that ground, as the high priest of his people, he prays. He asks his father, Father, hear their prayers. Why should I hear their prayers? They're my people. You gave them to me, but they're sinners. But yes, here's my blood. I shed that blood for them. And that blood covers every last one of their sins. It's hidden from your sight. You cannot see the blood. 
Well said, my son. Prayers granted. I accept them because I accept you. I accept what you did in their stead. That is why to preach Christ means that much will be made of the blood of Christ. Much will be made. When you make much of the blood, you're going to make much of the suffering. You're going to focus on the agony and the shame and the sorrow of the Christ of Calvary. It won't just be a passing thought in your mind or a passing mention in a message It'll be the focal point. Much will be made of Christ. To preach Christ crucified? Somehow, this man of sorrows has, I fear, been set aside in much of what is called gospel preaching. When there is no real exposition of the cross... No expounding of the blood atonement. When there's no deeper understanding of a Christian saying, well, then Jesus died for me and I'm okay now. Without even grasping, what does that mean? How is it so? On what ground are you forgiven? How does God accept you? How do, what does the death of Jesus Christ actually have to do with your acceptance before God in heaven? No setting forth of Christ as the sacrifice for sins. No setting forth of Christ as the propitiator of God's wrath. The intercessor and indeed the advocate of his people. Rather, the cross of his humiliation and suffering has become, in many quarters, just another marketing tool to make money. It's a cross that can be worn around the neck, a cross that can be put into the ears with pierced earrings, imprinted on t-shirts, embossed on mugs, and ceramic figurines. The cross in that quarter is nothing more than something that is merchandised. And I want you to look at it like that. It's being merchandised in all shapes and sizes. It's all done to make money. Merchandise. But that's not the cross. And that's not the Christ that the apostles preached. The cross, you see, they understood it well. The cross was an emblem of awful reproach. It was an emblem of the worst and deepest shame, disgrace that you could imagine. They would never dream of wearing a cross around their necks as a necklace. They had never dreamed of putting it upon a mug or a glass. Something of reproach and shame. Preach it, they would. As they preached the cross, it was preaching Christ crucified. 
The emblem of suffering and shame. Not glittering gold and silver, folks. But that's been lost sight of. I know if I could go to many a church and say those words, I would be tarred and feathered and run out of town. But that's the old gospel that used to be preached in this country. Used to be. To preach the God-exalted Christ, you have to preach the crucified Christ. It is his humiliation that gives meaning to his exaltation. I, I think the church is filled with countless Christians who live in continual defeat and frustration regarding their spiritual life. They, they look into their hearts and they see so much sin and they see so much failure. Guilt weighs heavily upon their souls. There are scores of other believers who live in perpetual doubt as to their standing before God. They worry that they're not saved and they can't ever come to any kind of confidence in their mind they belong to the Lord. The answer always seems to be, make another decision. Walk the aisle again. And it gets repeated over and over and over again. M many, many Christians feel defeated about their prayer life. Their sins stare them in the face. And they don't think, really, that God has much time for them because they don't seem to have much time for Him in prayer. They don't think that God has much love for them and certainly He doesn't have much use for them. Now I ask you, given those set of circumstances, what is the answer? What do those Christians need to hear. Is it a sermon on five steps to overcoming depression? Is it by preaching to them that they need to make new resolutions? That they need to rededicate their lives to the Lord? I can't tell you how many times I've gone down that road. Is it a matter that what they need to hear is the message of try harder and do more? No. The answer is the same as it's always been. It's to preach the exalted Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. A Christ whom God exalted through his suffering and death. You see, now the focus becomes not upon me, but it becomes upon the Lord of glory. It's the Lamb of God that takes the attention. Isn't that what Bonner was saying tonight? Not what I am, O Lord, but what thou art. That, that alone can be my soul's true rest. It's not my love to thee, it's thy love to me. That makes all the difference in the world as to how I go through a day.
Satan is a master at getting you to put your focus upon your heart and your sins and your failures. And it would drive anybody into depression. Anybody. To look continually at what's wrong with them. He's so, so skillful at beating the people of God down. What they need, therefore, to see is their eyes off themselves and upon Christ exalted. Christ crucified. Exalted at the right hand of God. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not what I feel or do, wrote Bonner, not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers or sighs or tears can ease this awful load. Thy work alone, O Savior, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. It's the blood. It's the crucified Christ. It's seeing him, knowing him, resting in him, that I find peace and rest. It's the only answer to our sins. It's the only remedy. It's the only source of victory. It's not the resolutions. It's not the sermons all about do more and be this and be that. It's looking off unto Jesus. I'm going to stop there. Good place to stop. I want to come back and look at the position of this exalted Christ. Him hath God exalted to be a prince and a savior. And what that actually means to us as Christians, that he's been exalted as a prince and a savior. And the order of the words is important. Prince before Savior. God, write that word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we come to the end of the Lord's day. We know, Lord, had it not been that we had been given to Christ, we'd have never sought him, we'd have never had any interest in him, no interest at all in pleasing the Lord or wanting our sins forgiven. How we thank Thee that the reason we sought Him was because He first sought us. He came looking for us as we were going down the byways and highways of sin on the broad road to hell. And He sought us till He found us. And He brought us on His shoulders home rejoicing. O oh God, enable this servant of thine to preach Christ, the Prince and the Savior, whom thou hast exalted at thy right hand, and grant to thy people here a growing interest in, desire for the Lamb of God that we front and center in their lives. Give us those eyes to see the Lord, and all will be well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
and amen.